This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. It's time for a community interview on NPR. All right, uh, we're back. This is time for another community interview. Um, good morning, Bill. My guest today is Bill Angus. How's, how's things? Things are well with me, Hugh. How are things with you? Doing pretty well, actually. Doing pretty well. Things uh, there's, there's some complicated office shuffling going on to deal with the red light situation. But outside of that... We are we are getting there, and we're all getting better at Zoom, which you know, slowly but surely. True. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, it's, it, these are necessary skills in the modern world. Well, exactly, more and more so. Now, uh, there's kind of two directions I want to go simultaneously. I was going to say, talking of other, you know, vital skills for the modern world. Um, People who've uh, regular listens to the station will have heard your voice quite a lot because we play a fair bit of your music on air. But uh, yeah, always always happy to do that. But the thing that we're talking to you about today is is actually uh, related to another part of your life, which is that you you are an academic and and write books as such from time to time. Yeah, and I've tended to write books that academics are interested in, but this latest book might be something other people are interested in too. Um, anybody that's vaguely interested in history or even um, the, the the kind of roots of some of the ideas that are behind uh, some of the mythology of 20th century, 21st century music, might, they might be interested in that too. So it's got it's got elements of, of uh, musical history, elements of... Um, religious ritual, witchcraft, um, mythology, and um, other interesting things that have happened historically at Crossroads. This is a, yes, this is exactly right, because talking about the kind of musical mythology leads into Mm. kind of, I guess, a founding musical myth for people who listen to Western rock music, which will derives on a long enough chain from the blues. If you were to ask people, you know, what, what is the what is the kind of number one occult fact uh, or occult blues factoid? They're almost mm. certainly going to bring up uh, Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil, which of course is is reputed to have happened at a crossroads. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's where I started with this this topic. Um, you know, I was kind of looking for a way to to find something interesting to write about because. Uh, um, I needed a new subject to, to research and just wondered if there was any way I could bring the two parts of my head together and uh, look for something musical that connected with uh, the stuff about Shakespeare and drama that I tend to write about. And um, I was thinking about Robert Johnson. A friend of mine had mentioned the myth to me some years back and, and I'd kind of looked into it a little. And I was thinking about that and I was reading Midsummer Night's Dream and there's a, there's a part of that where one of the characters talks about spirits that in crossways and floods have their burial. And I was thinking, why would anybody be buried at a crossroads? And then I thought, oh, maybe this is connected to the Robert Johnson stuff. And uh, turns out it is quite deeply connected um, to the whole history of 
what happens at Crossroads. And that's been the, the last, well, it's taken me nine years, I think, to, to write and publish this thing. So it's been quite a long project of trying to find these connections and, and, and uh, lots of other connections too and a sort of web of interesting little snippets of culture that, that seem to converge conveniently at the crossroads. I guess, I mean, the thing about crossroads is that if you're thinking about uh, f- to to use an unnecessarily um, fancy term, something, something like the idea of, of psychogeography, crossroads are kind of a, a universal feature all over the world wherever people came up with the idea of roads. And so it makes sense that, you know, it would be a like a – People might not have the same resonance with it necessarily, but it's going to be a resonant location for lots of different people around the world at, all at once, and and that leads to kind of interesting confluences, I imagine. Yeah, um, so many things to say about that, but yes, <laughs> almost every culture, almost every culture has a crossroads mythology of one kind or another. Um, often pre-Christian, the, the Christian Church hasn't hasn't been friendly with the idea of the crossroads and in fact outlawed lots of crossroads practices in Europe whenever it could. Um, But yeah, most cultures have uh, a a presence or or some divine thing that needs to be supplicated at the, at the crossroads. Um, And it's, it's probably linked to, to the idea that, you know, as crossroads as a metaphor is, is such a dominant idea. And roads as a metaphor, you know, that the idea of the, the life as a, as a journey uh, is, a, is a very, very long metaphor. From, probably from the time when it wasn't a metaphor, when it was, when it was really actually the case for most people that were, were travelling all the time, following their herds um, and migrating with their prey. And uh, probably since that time, it's been... A significant point you can imagine coming to a crossroads and having to make meaning from that understanding that you could go, you can go two or three or four different ways and each of those ways will have a, an effect on the rest of your life so it's from the yeah from the very earliest times i think been a, a significant place and most of the gods that you find there are gods of transition or transformation or gateway gods to other realities so just a just a just an example of that, the the idea of Robert Johnson going down to the crossroads and selling his soul to the devil for the skills to play blues guitar um, are probably rooted in the fact that his plantation, the, the Dockery Road crossroads um, plantation, that, that his ancestors were shipped over to work on, um, was largely a Nigerian community and the god that they worshipped was Eshu Elegba. Eshu Elegba is a god of transformation who lives at the crossroads. So of course in the Christianized version of that he's he's not going to the crossroads to 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 find a transformation through his through his ancestral divinity. Um, but he's simply communing with the devil because all of those ancestral divinities are suddenly subsumed by the church into into one evil individual an oppositional enemy um and so yeah that myth comes comes out of that that ancient practice i think of finding transformation at the crossroads i was i was wondering if Ilegbo was going to come up um 
because he's one of those uh, African gods that kind of starts in one spot and then through combinations of like um, the the slave trade and also um, just religions borrowing from other religions, he ends up in a lot of those um, spread around very syncretic uh, traditions like all of the different things that you can call voodoo practices. He, he's one of the ones who crops up again and again there. Um, and I was yeah. aware of his uh, attachment to Crossroads, so I wondered if that was part of the Robert Johnson thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, the other thing to note about the Robert Johnson thing is Robert Johnson never claimed to have gone to the Crossroads. His cousin Tommy Johnson did claim that. But most of his, his uh, Robert Johnson's biographers in the early days perpetuated this myth and it's worth pointing out that it's a it's a lucrative myth you know it worked it's worked for other musicians in the past that um uh touch on that in the book too that, that this kind of whiff of sulfur has always been a useful thing for a, for a for a musician to to have and it carries on doesn't it eric Cla- eric clapton's used it the rolling stones used it their satanic majesties um billy eilish used it recently Kanye West has used it. It's it's constant. This idea that um, that there is something to be gained in that transformation or that transaction, and 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 there's cachet in the idea that your music in particular is u- uh, uniquely dangerous or or carries a, a link to something occult and, and powerful. Um, that the idea that you know people who listen to your music might go mad or have their soul damaged in some way has, has never actually done anyone any harm. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm not, you know, speaking as a musician for a second, that thing that happens with music is the most, for me, the only spiritual thing that really exists. Uh, and so the church has long been very, very wary and religious communities generally either either use it or are very very wary of it because it is actually the, the thing that the only material thing that they have I think apart from perhaps community that that really has a has a, has a material reality uh, that that affects how people feel and think um, and so yeah that the music has has always been transformational uh, and you know so you, you end up with that idea of the devil's interval. Um, which is in many, many uh, pieces of music. I found out recently it's in the opening bars of The Simpsons. Yes, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that, that I, it's just the very idea that there is such a thing as a, an evil interval of music is very revealing about the way that people think about spirituality. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly if you, if you look at things talking about um, – you see it in the blues, but but also you see it in the movies that Jamaicans were making about that that included details about the reggae kind of industrial complex as it was starting to be. The idea that there's like there's God's music and there's the devil's music. They're, they're the only two kinds of music that you can play, and if you're not doing one, then you're definitely doing the other. Um, it's yeah. a yeah, it's a very strong thing. To 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 stop being distracted by. Um, Music history and and talk about crossroads a bit more. Um, I I was very into all kinds of spooky nonsense as a as a kid, and so the the other big kind of mythological factoid I knew about crossroads is that it's where you where you bury things that you don't want to find their way back to somewhere important, 
um, you, you bury vampires at crossroads. You you bury people who you think might turn into vampires or werewolves at crossroads. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, that 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 idea of vampires and werewolves is, I think, relatively modern. But what people really really did believe and believe for a very very long time was that uh, somebody that had died either by suicide or um, in some way, it, perhaps they were a murderer, or if they were hanged, which often also happened at crossroads, gallows were set up at crossroads, and people were simply buried underneath them. Um, if if you were one of those people and you and you died, you couldn't be buried in consecrated ground, so you would t- be taken to be buried at the crossroads because they 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 believed um, not only that the spirit could come back, but the body itself could come back. So the body itself needed staking. Um, there wasn't, it, it wasn't that there was something mythological about that particularly. It was quite physical that they, they really believed that a body um, that was improperly buried or, or had some kind of desperate sin attached to it could literally find its way out of the grave. And, and, and reports of this in medieval England and Europe um, were, were quite common. Um, so, yeah, not just the ghost, not just the spirit, but the body itself would need to be fixed, often staked, not with a tiny little vampire stake, a convenient little one-foot-long thing, but something that was at least six feet long because it needed to be – often it needed to um, – Often it was left out, let's say, it was left out as a warning to passers-by that the butt of the stake would be left out and sometimes bound in iron so that it was going to last uh, to show where this dangerous individual was buried. And, of course, the crossroads um, was supposed to confuse the creature, the, the returning corpse, the revenant, from being able to find its way back home. And lots of the burial practices um, in Europe were to do with confusing the body as you were taking it from the house so it couldn't come back. Um, and part of the reason for that is that it, it, it may be the case that spirits, in some traditions anyway, spirits can only travel in straight lines. So the, the, the multiplicity of the crossroads was supposed to confuse them. Yeah, they wouldn't know which line to take. I, I always thought it was like a, a curious feature of, of vampire myth that there were a bunch of things that seemed a lot to o, like a lot like OCD to me. Like you can stop a vampire by throwing a handful of grains in front of them because they'll have to count them all before they can follow you, or they they can't come inside without being invited, and they can't work out which way to go at a crossroads because they're incapable of making a decision and choosing any path over any other. It just seemed like. I don't, it was interesting that they should be so feared, but also kind of um, have this element of pathos in, in terms of the stuff yeah. that they have to deal with. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the one of the things that I found out about Crossroads was that people definitely used them as a as a means of empowering themselves against the, the these impla- you know the implacable forces of life. Um, so vampires are a very good example. You know, you can't. It, unless you know the spell, unless you know those tricks, vampires can kill you and eat you, or you know, suck your blood mm. and you'd be dead, or you'd become a vampire. So there's nothing you can do to stop a vampire unless you know the tricks. And there's something about that about the crossroads as well. You know, I was, I was part of the research. I was in the 
it was great because I've never done this sort of archival research before. I've never really had to because most of the stuff is online. But I was in the Bodleian Library in, in Oxford digging into 17th century manuscripts, looking for crossroads spells. Um, managed to find a couple of things that were actual, you know, sort of from spell books that were spells that were done at crossroads to achieve various things, uh, usually making somebody fall in love with you or to harm somebody. But it was the, the detail is quite precise that you're supposed to take a cat, take its eyes out, bury the eyes at the crossroads, or possibly bury the cat at the crossroads, um, turn around three times. This had to be done on a Wednesday at midnight. It's all extremely precise. Um, and you find that precision in the, the rituals that, that people are, are, are using to try and make themselves feel empowered at this significant place, you know, to try and affect these, these great implacable forces that we're, we're all subject to. And I mean, you know, it's not, it, it's hard to go through all of the, the learning necessary to become um, a, a learned person who can try and gain access to the great occult traditions of, of academia or the church, but everyone's got a crossroads. You know that if you go out of town not that far, you, you will find it. So it's it's quite accessible to to the common person who wants to make someone's hair fall out or make someone fall in love with them. Absolutely, yeah. It's always there on the edge of things, at the edge, or, or I kind of like to argue between the edges of things because the edges were often boundaries of, of um, parishes and you know those sort of patriarchal spaces where men exerted their influence were, were often very vague at the boundaries um, and often were bounded by roads. But the but crossroads being where two roads cross was sort of doubly, doubly ambiguous. And so it was, it was a good space for people who wanted to get out of that um, sort of spiritual sphere of influence and find another one. I find one that didn't, didn't, that wasn't assumed inside that, that very demarcated world. Um, and so, yeah, it was it, one of the reasons I think that, that often the tradition around Crossroads is, is a female tradition, um, that women are looking for empowerment there. Uh, not, not exclusively by any means, but, but where, where they are seeking empowerment, it, it often tends to be women that are reputed, at least, to be um, cavorting at the Crossroads with the devil. Yes, yeah, um, and the, all of the ideas about about having a having a secret source of power because because things are still getting done and yet we've taken away all of your um, overt power and somehow you're still making us do things. How could this possibly be the case? Um, mm. Thank you very much for talking today. This has been a, a somewhat rambly conversation, but I hope it's given people. Uh, a, a little bit of insight into what's in the book and why they might want to check it out. Uh, if people do want to check it out, um, what's the best way to do that? Can you can you go buy it yourself? Can you bother the library to get get a copy so you could borrow it? Um, yeah, I would bother the library. It's because it's technically an academic book. It's ridiculously expensive because it's ma- mainly in its when it's now it's a hardback. It's for libraries to buy really. So you can either wait till it comes out in paperback, which will usually be about a year from now, and you probably get it for $20, $30, um, 
or get get your library to buy it. You definitely don't want to be paying out what the libraries are paying for it. If anybody's really interested and and, and wants to wants to know more and uh, just just hasn't hasn't got the means to to, to get it um, as soon as they'd like, then I'm happy to don't tell the university press this. Of course, I, I know I know that Edinburgh University Press will not be listening to this, or maybe they will, maybe they won't. But I will take the risk. Uh, and say, I, I'm happy to send a PDF to anybody that's, that's really interested. Um, get in touch with me via w.j.angus at massey.ac.nz and uh, I'll get you a copy if you need it. Excellent. And if people were going to bother their local library to invest in a copy, what, what's the, the full and proper title of the book so they can um, they can do that? It's just a history of crossroads in early modern culture. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Bill. Thanks, you. You've been listening to another community interview on NPR, also available on demand at npr.nz. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the KiwiFruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.